My name is Reese, one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you this morning. Such a joy getting together on Sundays. Um, you know, it's become part of our rhythm for many of us, our weekly routine. Um, but really, like, it's a joy to be able to look around and to, uh, you know, look down your pew and see believers here, followers of Jesus, gathered together in one room, worshiping Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Um, few things you should know about me, especially if you're new. Um, the last number of weeks and times that I've preached, for some reason, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not intentional. I keep talking about bears. Um, I don't know why it always comes up. It's a unique relationship. Uh, I'm happy to report that this weekend saw five bears in one field, romping around, running around. It was like glory. Amazing. Um, so we, we're starting this series called Who We're Becoming, and it's really a, a deeper look at our values, our core values as a church community. And this morning, I want to dive deeper into our value of discipleship. Discipleship. And uh, we're going to look at what this means. But here's, here's how we expand on this value in a written statement um, on our website. It says that we are committed, as Calvary, to raising up followers of Christ, transformed and empowered by the Spirit, to live for and serve Jesus. I'm going to read that one more time. We are committed to raising up followers of Christ, transformed and empowered by the Spirit to live for and serve Christ. Um, this is not a new idea for us. This is not um, a new concept that Calvary has come up with. This is an ancient value of Christianity. And this has been a value that Calvary has held since it was founded in 1961. Am I right? Can anyone fact check me? 61? Anyone? I, I hate to do this, but has anyone, has anyone been attending Calvary since the 60s? Yes, we've got, we've got some. Can we just give a round of applause to Annalisa and Ron? Um, there, there are people in this room who have been attending Calvary since the 60s, the 70s, 80s, 90s. Really uh, important. And why we celebrate that is because... Um, Really, our discipleship under Jesus uh, is formed and shaped and challenged in community. It's one of the first things Jesus did is he gathered followers and he, uh, he did life with them in community. And they grew together. They learned together by observing one another's mistakes and observing one another's uh, victories and wins. And so that is our value here, discipleship. But uh, we are going to look at discipleship and expand more on this idea by really asking three questions. And here are the three questions. What, number one, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? We're going to go back to the basics. Number two, who are we disciples of? It's a, it's a way more important question to ask ourselves than we might think. And number three, what are we called to as disciples under Jesus? So, let's pray together. 
Jesus, thank you so much for what you're doing here at Calvary. Thank you that um, there is a deep joy and satisfaction in being able to link arms together and make a decision to disciple and learn under you. We're grateful for what you're doing uh, in each of our hearts, and we know that the work isn't just done here for 30 minutes on a Sunday during a sermon, but it's holistic. It's, it's 24-7. Your spirit is never taking a break. You are always at work, God, and we receive that this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so number one, first question, what is a disciple? Simple question, right? And I, I want you to, some of you might be like, oh, Reese, aren't we going to go a little bit deeper this morning? But I think it's so important for us to get down to the root of what do we mean when we talk about disciple? Um, I think of my friend who moved to Saskatchewan uh, for a summer while we were in university. He did that because he wanted to learn to be a cowboy. Um, and so he moved to Saskatchewan to live on a ranch, no prior experience, and uh, he wanted to learn under a rancher and a cowboy. And so, uh, really, he got there, unpacked his things into the farmhouse, got settled, and um, before he knew it, it was 4 a.m., and the rancher approaches him and says, uh, just, just do as I do. So he saddles up a horse, gets on, they get ready, and he's just like, what am I doing? Uh, and he spent a whole summer learning under this rancher what it means to do what he does. Um, I think of uh, the barbershop I used to go to uh, in which there was an experienced barber who uh, came from Iran and he was teaching his son who was probably around 12 or 13 years old uh, the trade, how to cut hair, how to shave beards. Um, and so I would go in there, and every now and then when I got my hair cut, I would um, be treated to the uh, skills of the 13-year-old trainee. And so uh, there is a special kind of pain when you look in the mirror after getting your hair cut from a 13-year-old. But I'm sure, I'm sure it's different now. Um, I think about when Larissa and I were in the south of France traveling around, and we uh, got to take a little boat, a little ferry out to an island just off the coast where uh, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, monks have been living and learning how to practice the way of Jesus in community. And uh, they, were, they were embodying what this looked like uh, by making wine together. And so they would uh, spend their time uh, in the vineyards and then crushing grapes fermenting. I don't know how to make wine. They do. But there was, there was something about these new monks who would come to this monastic community and they would learn under the masters. They would learn what it would look like to do life in this community. This is, these are the things that I think of. And, and when we think of disciple, these images should, should come to mind. The original Greek word is mathetes, mathetes, and it simply means apprentice, pupil, learner, and disciple. Uh, this is the word that was used in Jesus' time, and so in his time, when Jesus walked earth, 
Um, the common apprentices, methetes, that you would see would be smiths, cobblers, farmers, winemakers as well. Uh, you would find apprentices all over communities who were learning the tricks of the trade, how to do life under a teacher. And so you would also see this uh, with Jewish rabbis. They would take pupils and apprentices and uh, to follow them and learn the way of the rabbi and to live a godly life serving Yahweh. And the, the common phrase for a methetes or a pupil or an apprentice under a rabbi, uh, when someone would ask what they did, the phrase would go something like, I walk in the dust of the rabbi. I follow in the dust of the rabbi. There was this closeness, this intimacy in which they would follow the teacher. And so when Jesus began to do ministry as the Messiah, one of the first things that he did, number one on the order of things to do as Messiah, was to gather mathetes, pupils, apprentices, and the people he gathered were interesting. They were an eclectic group. We know this when we read the Gospels. Fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, people who you wouldn't necessarily expect to walk in the dust of a rabbi. And he offered them a simple invitation. He would say, follow me. Follow me. And without any details, Without any agenda, they would. And so what we began to see as Jesus was teaching his pupils was kingdom of God 101. And so like a welder would teach their apprentice the ins and outs of welding or a portfolio manager what the right investments are worth making, Jesus began to teach his disciples about what he called the kingdom of God. So Jesus' cohort of disciples, they were sent on field assignments and missions. They learned what to do, what not to do. A new way of participating in life with God and his reconciliation with humanity. And eventually, the disciples made more disciples. Who made more disciples? Pupils, apprentices, multiply, multiplied pupils and apprentices. Disciple, mathetes, a learner, a pupil underneath a teacher. And I want to ask you this question. Is that your relationship with Jesus? As you do an, an audit of your life and your walk with Jesus, would you consider yourself a pupil, an apprentice of Jesus? One of the many crises of Christianity in our time is this idea that we can graduate from this learning period. That at some point we just kind of move on and we've settled into a life with Jesus and our faith and our discipleship stagnates. Instead of walking closely in the dust behind what Jesus is doing, we've distanced ourselves and we've said, I'm good, I'm good on my own now. I've, I think I've understood Christianity. I think I've understood Jesus. I can just do me. Relationship with Jesus, and this is a warning throughout the New Testament, for many has been defined by the slow drift into indifference and uh, instead of a profound call to discipleship. 
So you might be thinking to yourself this morning, oh, I think that's me. I think that's me. I can sense the slow drift in my life away from maybe at one point was a fervent, radical discipleship under Jesus. And maybe there has been a slow drift into indifference. The question that might be on many of your hearts this morning as we cover this topic and this value as a church would be, how do I become a disciple? Or how do I become a disciple again? What we'll realize is that we need to go deeper still. And we need to ask the second question, which is who or what are we disciples of? Who or what are we disciples of? I love this text in Luke chapter 6. Verses 39 and 40, and this is how it reads. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who was fully trained will be like their teacher. Um, there's this classic story that takes place in the 1930s, and uh, the rapid rise of uh, Nazism in Germany. And the Reich was imposing its will on German society as a whole. And so Adolf Hitler did not just want political power as Nazism was gaining momentum. He wanted complete power over the people of Germany. And that meant the church. So when they began to influence the evangelical church, the Nazis... Uh, they excluded all non-Aryan pastors and clergymen. They incorporated pro-nationalist liturgy in their services, and they removed the Old Testament completely from their Bibles. It's shocking. It's stunning. You might think, how could it ever get to that? And so in the midst of all this crisis, there was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, I mean, for those of us who um, have studied church history in the last couple hundred years, I mean, he is a legend of the faith. And Bonhoeffer uh, came from money, he came from status, um, and he, as he studied um, theology and the way of Jesus in this moment uh, in Germany, he began to ask some serious questions. So what he did was he felt compelled by the Spirit to act against the growing force of Nazism. And he uh, went out to Poland, and he established a small seminary where he would, called Finkenwald, where he would train pastors in a remote location um, the way of Jesus because he had seen the compromise of the church amidst this growing regime. And so his family and friends, they were all super confused about this decision from Bonhoeffer to move off into a remote location and train pastors. Um, he left a position of prestige as a professor. He had his PhD at 21 years old. And uh, they thought, okay, we got we to do something about Dietrich. I mean, he's, he's kind of out of his mind doing this. He's, he's maybe too radical. And so um, a friend was sent to... Uh, go visit him and uh, ultimately try and talk him out of 
um, what he was doing over in Finkenwald in this small remote location in Poland. And so this friend arrives at Finkenwald. He finds Bonhoeffer and his cohort of pastors that he's training. Um, And after a brief conversation, uh, Bonhoeffer invites him to go on a canoe ride. And so they row across a river, and across the river there was a hill, and him and his friend, they climbed the hill. And as you went over the hill, there was a clearing, and at the very far end of the clearing was uh, a Nazi youth camp. And fighter jets were coming and going, Um, young soldiers were ordering and arranging themselves in tight positions, chanting, stamping their boots. And he stands there for a moment with his friend. And he points back to Finkenwald, his small seminary. And this is what he says. As he looks at the Nazi youth camp, he says, this is a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. Pointing back to Finkenwald, he said, you have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. He says, pointing at Finkenwald, this must be stronger than that. And so we live in a different time. Hitler is long buried underneath the ground. The temptation that faced followers of Jesus in the 1930s lingers today. We are all disciples of something or someone, and there are powers and forces at play that demand our allegiance that aren't Jesus. And so there might not be a regime breathing down our neck, but every day we face the pull of modern powers, what Scripture might call false gods or idols, a myriad of forces uh, looking to sabotage our trust in Jesus. So it could be work. Money, status, sex, patriotism, a relationship, video games. We are all susceptible to becoming, and many times unknowingly, disciples of these things. Pupils, apprentices. We walk closely, obsess over such things. Not all these things are inherently bad, but I love how John Tyson puts it. He says the temptation is to turn good things into God things. That is an age-old temptation for followers of Jesus. And the historically tested truth is that, and I love how G.K. Beale puts it, he says, we resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration. We resemble what we revere, either for ruin or for restoration. And so the question is, who or what are we disciples of? And so it's never a bad time for us, even though we might be confident in our discipleship and our relationship with Jesus, for us to do an audit of our lives and to ask ourselves, who am I a disciple of right now? Or what am I a disciple of right now? And so discipleship under Jesus involves this Active resistance to other masters. Jesus says in Matthew 6, you cannot, you cannot serve two masters. 
So many who wanted to follow Jesus and who were looking to become an apprentice of Jesus, they couldn't quite grasp this idea. We think of the rich young ruler who wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus essentially said to him, you cannot serve two masters. Give up your possessions. And, and he couldn't do it. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, no, you can't serve two masters. So I want you to place yourself in that moment with Jesus where there's an invitation to follow him. And after expressing maybe that desire, what might Jesus ask you to give up first? What is that thing you are holding tightly to? Or what is that, uh, what is that thing that, that you have been following closely, discipling under unknowingly? And so at Calvary, we're becoming... We're committed to becoming followers of Jesus with a radical fidelity to his way, to his truth, to his teaching, to his word. That is our direction, Lord willing. And so if you're disinterested in that direction, if you're finding yourself here this morning and you are not compelled to make this. To, to make Jesus master of your life. We love you, but this might be a very uncomfortable place for you to be long-term. Because as a church, that is the direction we're heading. Amen. That is what we're looking ahead to. We are constantly being formed and shaped into something. And our hope here at Calvary is that we are being formed and shaped into the image of Jesus by discipling under him. And so the next big question that we have to ask ourselves is this. What are we called to as disciples of Jesus? And we're going to just briefly read from Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Jesus said, then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. What are we called to as apprentices and disciples under Jesus? And I'm tempted to just end my sermon here with that question so that you might all just go home and wrestle with it. What are we called to as disciples, learners, apprentices, pupils, under Jesus Christ. I'd love to just leave you with that, but I'm going to provide just a few thoughts and then we'll wrap up. And so in response to this question, what are we called to? We have to go to Jesus himself and his words. His words in Luke 9, they address this very question. He starts with, whoever wants to be my disciple. And so these words, they cut through the pages into our heart and they address us in the here and now. Because I am assuming that each of you in this room right now 
have a longing and a, de- and a desire to be a disciple under Jesus, that you feel compelled by that vision, that you love Jesus and you want to follow him. Next, he says, must deny themselves. Must deny themselves. He's saying there's no part of following me that involves self-indulgence. And so we need to really take Jesus' word for it here other than the televangelist that we'll see on TV. And he says, take up their cross daily. Must deny themselves, take up their cross daily. This has often been a confusing text for me. What does that mean? Take up your cross daily. So those who were listening to Jesus would have known, they would have immediately had an image of what that would have looked like because uh, as we know from Jesus' own crucifixion, this was a common way of executing criminals uh, during the Roman Empire and Rome's regime over in Israel. And so they had probably seen a man from their own village taken by a band of Roman soldiers um, with a cross, carried up the hill to be crucified. And the truth is about this is that this was a one-way journey. There was no coming back from that. So Jesus is saying this, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my apprentice, you have to be ready every single day to practice the ultimate form of self-sacrifice and self-denial. And so the most beautiful, stunning part about the God that we serve, about Jesus, is that he isn't sitting up in the director's chair with a megaphone shouting these orders down at his pupils. Jesus is at the front of the pack with his own cross. So what is asked of us as disciples of Jesus? It is the hard resistance and denial of what might corrupt us and the embrace the tight embrace of the life of self-sacrifice that Jesus modeled for us. So what what does this kind of self-denial look like? It can look a number of different ways that might be very relevant to your world today. It It might come in the form of refusing to gossip in the workplace. Maybe it's cutting out the outbursts of anger that you feel like are a common occurrence in your life. Maybe it's finally getting some help and uh, ending your pornography addiction. Maybe it's acknowledging a particular privilege that you hold and choosing to relinquish it. Deny yourself. What does that look like in your life? So I love what Andy Crouch says. He says, the most transformative acts of our lives are likely to be the moments when we radically empty ourselves in the very settings where we would normally be expected to exercise authority. How beautiful of a quote is that? I love, I'm inspired by the life of a woman named Jackie Pullinger. I don't know if you've heard of her. Um, She was a British missionary who at a young age felt the call of Jesus to go serve and live with the poor in the walled city of Hong Kong that was plagued by drug addiction and abuse and extreme poverty. And as Jackie uh, did life there, 
Uh, she reflects on her journey with such a powerful quote. This is what she says. God wants us to have soft hearts and hard feet. The trouble with so many of us is that we have hard hearts and soft feet. So here's the great paradox uh, of Luke 9 in verse 24. It says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. It almost comes across as a riddle. But it's a simple equation from Jesus. Want to invest all of your time and effort and money on your own kingdom, Jesus is implying, then you'll lose life. You've lost the very essence of life. But to forfeit it all for a life of radical dependence on Jesus and sacrifice so that others might gain, says that's a life saved. That is life. And so he has a famous hyperbolic question here in verse 25. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? This is one of the greatest challenges that we face as disciples of Jesus. It's the choice. The choice that we all must confront. The world is available to you and all it it offers. And here, and when we talk about the world as, uh, whether from the pulpit or as Christians, here's what we don't mean. We don't mean God's created earth and the beauty of his creation that we get to see every day. And when scripture talks about the world, it, does, it also doesn't mean people that we are called to celebrate and love and journey with. So we find one of the best definitions of the world in 1 John chapter 2. Verses 15 to 17, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. It's reflective of that. Same verse in verse 24. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. So John, as he writes this in his letter, he's just expanding on the ideas that Jesus was already teaching in Luke chapter 9. And so you know, we know that deceptive ideas that are normalized in a sinful world lead to disordered desires in our life. And it's on the disciple of Jesus to say, I choose my soul over the world and what it will offer, over my own kingdom. I choose the kingdom of God and life. So what are we called to as disciples of Jesus? To give our all to him, to give it all to him, to say, Jesus, I will follow you with self-sacrifice, with hunger to learn and to grow under him. So I love what C.S. Lewis says in his 
opus, mere Christianity, says this. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. What an amazing hope. What an amazing life. And I, I, I really want to urge you, if you are on the fence about this, if you are living life right now and you've affiliated yourself with Jesus, but you haven't really gone to his teaching to learn and disciple and apprentice under him. I want to urge you, it is the most beautiful decision you'll ever make. Following Jesus is a life of adventure, a life of power, a life of giving and loving, the least of these. There is no better life than following Jesus. 100%. And so I just want to urge you and encourage you, if you are on the fence about this, dig deeper. Dig deeper. Have an encounter with Jesus. So, as we close, Calvary, who are we becoming? Who are we becoming? And so, I want to leave you with a few things, a few questions. What would it look like for us to chase after that kind of discipleship under Jesus. Walking in his dust. What would it look like in your life? What would it look like for us to be a community of people here at Calvary who've taken up their crosses to follow Jesus with no turning back? I want to say to you, if, if this if, if coming to Calvary was about finding a really nice, safe, comfortable Baptist church to kind of just nestle into, it might become uncomfortable because the direction that we're going is that we want to become radical, on fire disciples under Jesus. Like we just sang that. Like, like Lord, like, fill it, what do we say? Fill us with a holy fire? Have we even considered the implications of that when we sing it? That is intense. That's the direction that we're going under. And so what would it look like for us to be a community of people who look at the cross, we pick it up, and we follow Jesus with no turning back? A community of people who stand as a beautiful resistance to the magnetic pull of the world. So Calvary, we've, I, th- I think really in our ethos and our values, we've always been about going deeper. And I don't think we're really interested in the numbers. Uh, It's tempting. It really is. 
to do everything we can to bend over backwards to get as many butts in the pews as possible. But I love, I love this quote from Dallas Willard. Uh, he says, maybe instead of counting Christians, we should start weighing them. And would that be us? Would we be weighty? Would that be our value? So as we, I just want to recommend a few books. I don't normally do this, but I want to recommend a few books on the topic of discipleship because there's so much more to cover here, and there are people who can say it way better than I can say it. So a few books. Number one, we talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship. If you've read this book, you know it's absolutely earth-shatteringly profound. So if you have not, as a follower of Jesus, picked up The Cost of Discipleship, by the, the very man who stood as a beautiful resistance against the Nazi regime and its, its uh, power over the church in Germany, then please read this. It's amazing. He kind of goes through the Sermon on the Mount, exposits it, and just comments on it beautifully. Uh, number two, The Great Omission by Dallas Willard. Um, kind of gets to the heart of discipleship, really takes us back to what does it mean? A lot of what I talked about is kind of from that. It's like, what does it mean to be an apprentice of Jesus? Just like we'd see an apprentice of of someone else. Like, really, how do we embody that? Um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. If you've read this book, you know it's incredibly holistic in how it approaches life with Jesus and addressing our emotional health and wellness as essential in following Jesus. And so, uh, Schizero's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Unreal. Long Obedience in the Same Direction by Eugene Peterson. Fantastic read on um, kind of in an instant society where we are so used to getting everything we want right away. What does it look like for us to view our relationship and our journey as apprentices under Jesus as a long obedience in the same direction? That is, those are not words that we are used to hearing in our culture. Long obedience in the same direction. So uh, Eugene Peterson takes a number, a selection of psalms and uses them to supplement our discipleship. Uh, Ruth Haley Barton's Sacred Rhythms, unbelievable book, uh, looking at intimacy with Jesus cultivated by um, habits and practices that we can implement in our daily life. And so um, if you find yourself right now really struggling to um, implement some of the Practices of Jesus or spiritual disciplines. This is a great book to go to, Ruth Haley Barton's Sacred Rhythms. And um, then finally, Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller um, really hits home this resistance again against the magnetic pull of the world and the most common idols that we face as we do life with Jesus in our city. Um, so worship team, I'd love to invite you up uh, as we close. And... I just want to pray with you at the end and meditate on a few, a few things. So as we do this, um, I'd love for you to, I'd love to invite you to close your eyes and to stretch your hands out, your palms up like this, just way, just a way for us to really, in an embodied sense, um, posture ourselves to receive Jesus. Let's pray.
Jesus, we feel so challenged by your words, sometimes perplexed by your call for us to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow you. I want us to notice right now, what's the first thing that we feel in our gut when we hear those words from Jesus? For us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow him. morning I feel that Jesus is asking us, you know, by definition, would you consider yourself my disciple or apprentice? And Jesus, as we pray, we think about the most, what are the most common pitfalls that we encounter in our lives that prevent us from really discipling under you? What are the most common pitfalls? What comes to mind? Finally, Jesus, we want to assess our lives and ask ourselves, are we growing in zeal and hunger and passion for life with you? God, as we look deeper at what it means to be a disciple, there's so much more to reflect on and to chat about. Would we do that in community? Would we turn to our neighbors this morning? And would we ask each other those kinds of questions? Would this be a community of people who genuinely and wholeheartedly pursue you. Jesus, thank you that you love us. You deeply, deeply, more than we could ever know, you love us. And so we become your disciple, not, on, not, not because of fear or guilt, but because it's under your wings and in your fold that we find care and love and purpose. That Jesus, you are the one who knows us best. And despite knowing all these pitfalls that we encounter, you love us most. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.